Welcome into the Waiver Fire podcast. It is Super Bowl week. Nick and JP are in. How are you, man? I'm good. We're we're super excited to talk a little bit of Super Bowl and a lot of movies. <laughs> yeah, we will be we will be very quick on the football because honestly, the movie segment, the David Lynch filmography uh, review, or I guess like adventure, has just been so much fun already. We're only two movies in, but yeah, we will uh, we'll talk Tom Brady and Patrick Holmes just a little bit. And then we'll dive into the elephant, man. I am so excited. All right. Well, let's, I I think we have to first talk just a bit about the massive Matthew Stafford trade. Um, That's huge. Yeah. First, first reactions from you. I mean, when I saw it, you know, when I saw it and you see the names and you see the picks to me, I was just like a little bit in shock. And then kind of looking at it, I had a little bit more different opinions, but kind of your first takes, I guess. Yeah, I can see, I can see the, this, the different sides of it, why each team wants each player. I mean, Matt Stafford is worth all of that stuff that they got for him. I'm as far as fantasy implications go, though, I'm looking really heavily again at um, Robert Woods for the coming season and even looking at Cooper Cup a little bit more closely. Um, you don't, you don't, you don't really see any like growing pains, you know? I mean, Tom Brady didn't really have any growing pains. He started the year hot and was fine. And all of his weapons were, were pretty fine, but man, a new quarterback, new system that, that sometimes takes a little while to get used to. I mean, he is a vet, uh, you know, hardened vet. So he knows NFL football, but totally different system. Right. Well, I think at this point, as far as fantasy and stuff goes, I'm willing to gamble when it comes to wondering whether someone is going to fit or not, especially when there's been so much. So it's like they move mountains to make this happen. Um, it's kind of like getting burnt early this earlier this year, me on just being totally out on uh, DeAndre Hopkins, even right. though even though his year didn't like pan out in like a super, super big way, he was still a major top like five wide receiver on the year. Yeah. And yeah, I could see big things coming from any of these pass catchers and still even over in Detroit. I don't know if uh, Kenny Galladay is still going to be there next year, but if he is, I'm, I'm fine with Kenny Galladay picks. Marvin Jones, however, no. <laughs> so if I can kind of translate that, I know it's so early, but Robert Woods was kind of the token fourth, middle fourth, late fourth round pick to me this past year where I was scooping him there as my as my wide receiver too, pretty happily. Um still feeling that range or, or, or is that too, 
too juicy to pass up any time, or is that kind of the right spot, do you think, for him? Um, I think that for people that are going to be looking for a wide receiver around that range, that that might be a safe pick still. But I don't know if that's the way I'm going to draft this year, this coming year. I think I'm going to draft a little different where I go for value in the first two rounds. Mm -hmm. Things that I know are just sure things, number ones on teams, um, the kind of things that I know I could have reached for this year and I wasn't done to. I just didn't take it. Yeah, I totally agree. I I think he's probably going to – I think there's going to be a little buzz about Stafford just, you know, because he has shown in the last couple of years, I know he's been hurt, but when he's been playing, he's shown amazing stuff. I mean, Kenny Galladay and Marvin Jones Jr. were doing fantastically well. And so I think there's going to be a little buzz, but I think by the time it gets like right up to the season, I think Robert Woods is going to settle in probably more as a fifth round pick just because it is an entirely new situation. You don't know if he's going to be, uh, the one or even man who knows target share. But um, so I think he settles in as a fifth round and you're right. I think I'm going to have a different approach where I'm just going to wait on my wide receiver too for, for quite a long time, unless it's just crazy value. So I'm with you on that. And I guess I'm just a little bit more reserved. I think, um, I think honestly, it leans a little bit more on cam Akers side where, you know, you have a new system. I think they're going to, start the run game heavy until he can really adapt to it by the, you know, fourth or fifth game. And, and, you know, Matthew Stafford has been fantastic on checking the ball down to running backs for his entire career. So I could easily see 50, 60 targets going Cam Akers way. So I think it boosts his value a little bit for me. Um, And then, yeah, on the Lions side of the ball, I mean, who knows what those wide receivers are going to shake out to be. Um, Jared Goff's fine at dumping the ball off. And so DeAndre Swift, I think, just kind of stays where he was, which I don't think you and I have really talked DeAndre Swift. I mean, I, I didn't have him anywhere. Um, I'm, I'm really scared of DeAndre Swift. And for me, he's one of he's one of those players that makes me glad that I'm not a ranker. I don't have to yeah. rank these guys one after another. Um, I can throw them into tiers and and say, hey, these are I'm not going to look at you crazy if you take a player from this tier. And uh, I'm scared of him. That's that's about it. I'm scared. Yeah, I'm scared I think of failure. I'm totally with you there, and I think he probably settles in. Just just an early guess as kind of like an early third rounder is what it kind of feels like where he'll be. And so, you know, that's going to be people like maybe Melvin Gordon's in that kind of range um, based on his year. Maybe a David Montgomery is kind of sitting around there as well. Um, Honestly, names that I'm not too excited by. Maybe James Robinson is there if, if nobody else gets drafted with that team. Antonio Gibson might be kind of back end. Some, something like that. Do any of those names just scream out as way better than DeAndre Swift, or are those are those about right? Are those kind of what you're feeling? Well, I think the best ones out of all the ones you said are DeAndre Swift, mm. um, David Montgomery, 
and uh, Antonio Gibson. Yeah, Gibson so, versus Swift. Hmm. I think Gibson is. I just I don't. We don't know yet what's going to happen in the off season with the quarterback position. Yeah. And yeah. Who knows? End up at Washington. Yeah. I I think they'll make a good decision. And I'm going to just kind of preemptively say that it's going to be a nice situation at Washington. Cause I mean, they have, they're one of those teams that has like a lot of pieces already. Like they have the defense, they have the Terry McLaurin, they have the Cam Sims, they've got the Logan Thomas. They just need that, that quarterback. Yeah, but the quarterback situation, it's its not that fantastic out there. I mean, you have a lot of pieces like Carson Wentz, but he's going to stay. And, you know, it's like Jameis is kind of out there. There's not a lot of great ones that could get there. But um, I don't know. I mean, DeAndre Swift, you figure that Detroit Lions defense is just going to be absolutely horrific. So could he catch 40 to 50 balls? I think so. Whereas Gibson, he has been a decent pass catcher, but – you know, I don't know. He just gets – he seems to get faded out a little bit more on that third down. So, that'll be a great call. I think that was an interesting uh, either-or there. All right. So, enough talk on that massive trade. I guess uh, – I don't know. My last my last statement is that I think, I think the Rams, they just went so all in to give up both of your first rounders in the next two years. I get it. Like, they don't value draft picks nearly as much as – as sure things and, and Stafford is a sure thing if he's healthy, but to just never be able to sniff a quarterback for the next three years, that just feels so ballsy, man. I mean, they predict to be a good team. So in that way, a back end of the first round, you're not going to get really a great quarterback anyways, but man, if it goes wrong, you just don't have a quarterback forever. That's that's wild to me. I, I think it's just yeah. it was just a little too much for Stafford's injury history. I mean, his back has just been broken for three or four years now. And that's just something that just doesn't it's not like a injury that just gets better. You know, his, his back is fucked up. So yeah. it seems like a lot. Well, but you've you've heard the whole anecdote about how they haven't taken a first rounder since yeah. like. 2016 or something like that. I mean, you look at the Jalen Ramsey trade where I think they gave, they gave up, I think they gave up two firsts there and, and Jalen Ramsey has just been absolutely incredible. I mean, one of the best players in the league. So if you can get that for two first rounders, sure. But Jalen Ramsey was like, I want to say, I mean, mid twenties, if that, and now you get a 33 year old broken Matt Stafford. It just, it seems very different, but uh yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Well, let's talk a little bit of Super Bowl. Um, I know it's the Hollywood flash, the, the flashy stories of the the goat Tom Brady versus the probably future goat Patrick Mahomes, and it's a fantastic showdown. I get it, but I'm still just left a little wanting, man. I don't know. Are you? You're a fancy player, so you've got to be juiced about all the the high flying names in this affair. Um, yeah, I think I would be, except for the fact that I really just hate fantasy anything that involves the Bucks this year. <laughs> oh just, no! I hate the Bucks. They're just—I <laughs> mean, I—I just—they're—they're they're all over the place. They've got the two. They've got the three 
wide receivers, and I guess it's better now when there's really just two choices. Um, I do love the Cameron Great choice. It's always like so cheap mm. and you get a touchdown. But yeah, um, he's been our Dawson Knox of the year. We just love those cheap little tight ends that somehow get touchdowns, and he actually gets some work. I mean, he gets four or five targets. So Cameron Braid has been a, a bit of a love affair for ours this year, but I agree. Um, I think it is going to be pretty monstrous in points. Um, should be really fun. I think the defenses are a little bit better than you know everybody's going to talk about, but it should be really fun. Um, who's your Who's your favorite player out of all of these? Um, I guess to score the most points, but who are you if you're watching it? Who are, Who are you wanting to kind of just see on the TV for a while? Well, that. The answer to that question and also the, the player that I'm wanting to play in DFS in every one of my lineups is Travis Kelsey. Yeah. He's such a monster. He is so much fun. He just looks so absurdly big and it's so much like you don't you don't really see his routes, you know? I mean, the I, I think the NFL in general does a really poor job about showing routes during a play. But it doesn't matter because once you see him catch the ball, he just is so much fun from that point forward, mashing two people and being awesome. I totally agree. He, he is so much fun to watch, and I'm sure he'll do very well. I'm kind of looking at Leonard Fournette, not, not really as a fantasy player, but just his run last or two weeks ago now was it was such a glimmer of hope that there's still some like dragon buried deep beneath the lazy, sloggy, uh, you know, old beaten down Leonard Fournette that if he shows it again, like if he shows some real spark, I'm just going to be excited. I, I think he kind of gets, if he does, I think it might get him a contract to be a one at some team. I, I don't know where, I don't even really want to conjecture where, but it just be so cool to see him, uh, show some, some sort of spirit and, uh, and become some sort of value next year. You know, like if he goes to Miami, you know, and then maybe he's like a eighth round pick that, that turns out to be like an RB two or something on the year. It would be so cool. So I'm looking to see some magic from him either in the passing game or just doing something fun with his legs. Um, any other kind of real thoughts? It's a, did you see the line on this game? The over under? Did not. 56 and a half. Okay. I mean, that's one of the highest of the year. That's, that's intense. That's a 30 to 27 game. I mean, holy crap. That, that will be a very fireworks heavy Super Bowl if that happens. But uh, I yeah, don't seems, see. Seems like we ahead. haven't had, seems like we haven't had something that exciting as, as a Super Bowl in a while. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I don't know if that's just because we build them up so much that we want to see all the fireworks or if the teams have been defensive heavy. I don't know. I haven't really looked back to me. um, I was telling my brother this, this matchup, you know, where you have the old vet quarterback versus the new guy, it it feels a little bit like me to the Peyton Manning, Cam Newton uh, year, not in terms of their teams, because both of those defenses were incredibly good. Um, But it was like, does the old vet get that last title? And of course, we all know the Cam Newton uh, being scared to recover a fumble that ended up, uh, you know, finishing the game. And that was that was a great game, even though it was low scoring. But it kind of yeah. feels like that to me. 
Yeah, I can see that. Who do you see? Who do you see taking it down? I think the Chiefs take it. I think the Chiefs take it as well. Yeah. All right, cool, man. Well, any final thoughts on the Super Bowl? Nope. I'm just looking forward to it. I'm going to cook a bunch of good food. and. That's what I wanted to ask. I forgot. It was in my head. Do you have like a kind of Super Bowl ritual or, you know, uh, yeah, little like fanciness that you treat yourself to? No, it'll just be some normal football stuff. We'll do like some jalapeno poppers. Oh, baby. We'll order wings. We'll we'll get wings from like uh, I know they're so tiny, but Willie's wings they taste good. They you you remember Willie's wings, right? Willie's is is not good value, but if you don't really care about that, it's perfect. They're small, but they're just so delicious, and you can just pop them off, you know two or three in a row and just feel so satisfied. I, I'm with you, man. That's, that's a perfect choice. And there's this amazing restaurant in town called Chick Chick Pork Pork. What? That must and have come in after I left. Yeah, I think it's like a Korean oh. spot, but it's like it's next level good, and they have so many different wings. Oh, what the hell? Korean wings? Oh, yeah. Oh my God, dude. I'm so jealous. I'm salivating right now. Do you cook your poppers or do you get those from somewhere? I just cook it. It's so easy. I feel that. If I remember correctly, though, if you get lazy, Draft House downtown has unbelievable poppers. Okay. If you get lazy, they're they're absolute fire, man. Um, You know, I don't want to hype them up too much, but I think you'll I think you'll be satisfied if you get lazy. But that's what's up, man. Yeah, I'll probably I usually do some sort of just store bought cured meat with some chips and you know dips and whatnot. I kind of go the snacky route instead of uh instead of actually any meals, but we'll see how it goes this year. You know, it's it's basically me and the family up here by ourselves and they don't care about football. So, you know, maybe crack a beer or two and some other goodies, but it should be fun. Let's dive in, man. Let's talk some movies. We are continuing our adventure through David Lynch's catalog. If you missed last episode, we started off with his debut, Eraserhead. I have only seen Mulholland Drive and a little bit of Twin Peaks. JP is more the vet. Um, I assume you've seen The Elephant Man once or multiple times. I've seen it a lot of times. Okay. Actually. Did you happen um, to, did you watch it very, did you watch it this week leading up to this or no? I did. Oh, nice. All right, cool. Well, yeah, if, I've again, just, I've just seen it again. Let's do a disclaimer. If you haven't seen the film, go watch it. Cause we're just going to talk through it and, and spoil everything. So go watch it first. And it'll be more fun when you, when you chow through this part of the podcast. But uh, right. do we want to kind of tackle it the same way where you're last week? We kind of I, I just said first reactions and you gave a little bit more tidbits or, or how are you feeling this week? Um, let's see if we can get through uh, your points here on the on the film, like just the general bullet points on. All right, on let me got here. So I just typed up a bunch of random thoughts and, and if they kind of stir up anything, you, uh, you just jut in. 
and so I'll, I'll talk i'll talk some of the stuff about like the making of the film and stuff after you're done all right well let me talk uh so it, so we're transitioning from eraser head which if you haven't seen it to me it kind of came off as just that perfect debut artsy low budget um I guess you'd kind of say like, it's just a, a love piece where you, you know, the, the director clearly wanted to tell a story and he basically did whatever he had to, to make this thing and with, with no expectations of success or anything like that. And it did turn into a success. I don't know exactly how that vaulted him into a directorial um, spot of a paramount picture, but Lo and behold, when I turned on uh, the Elephant Man, <laughs> I was I was greeted by the Paramount logo, which which really caught me off guard. I mean, I think I had heard before that this was a little bit more, I guess, theatrical, you know, a little bit more commercial. But still, I was like, oh, shit, we're OK. We're just we got a Paramount film right here. And then okay. the very well, what well, I yeah, I keep going, but I'm going to tell you about how it's a Paramount movie. All right, you you go ahead. You you want me to go ahead or no? Yeah, tell me what you were about to say. Well, I was just going to say, and then the very next transition is the the actors and actresses, and it's Anthony Hopkins. I was like, wait, what? So we've just got a full blown Hollywood production here. I mean, I honestly don't know if Anthony Hopkins at the time was was big shit or not i have to assume he kind of was because he's you know a star player but i was just like oh my gosh i had to completely shift my um mentality towards what i was heading into and so i was like oh okay and then i have to say the only other introduction i guess i had to this film was that in that interview that you sent me of david lynch talking about Eraserhead, he mentioned something like with Eraserhead, he never thought about his audience's reaction, but that in his next film, he definitely wanted to think about that. So I don't really know what to take about that, but I guess in my head, it was kind of like he wanted to, I don't want to say dumb it down, but just make it a little bit more accessible. And so that's all I had going into it. But then I was like, oh, oh my God. All right, Paramount? And Anthony Hopkins, I have to just completely swap my mentality uh, going in. Um, right. it, and then and then there was kind of a nice introduction scene that was a little, you know, what I would say is kind of artsy, where you have the kind of panning around a portrait that we don't really know is a portrait at the time, but panning around with a woman's incredibly strong eyes. It really reminded me of... Um, I keep referencing Kubrick and all these, but that's really the only director I, I know well. It really reminded me of the eyes wide shut um, where you're just focused in on the eyes. And I'm just like, whoa, you're really mesmerized. It traces down to this woman's mouth and, and it's a very nice shot. And then of course it kind of goes into the trampling of her by elephants and it's really shot. And it's, it's an incredible shot. I, I love the way he layers on, the elephants to the lady and whatnot and then ultimately vanishes in a puff of smoke it's a wonderful introduction really from that point on throughout the entire film i would say it's very much less um 
artsy, I guess. <laughs> it, it's a it's a much more straightforward uh, film after that. You know, there's really no sleight of hand or spicy um, cinematography tricks or whatnot that I that I really picked up on. Um, and then I, I want to just get rid of get kind of close out this introduction because the introduction was so shocking to me. Um, I don't think it would be really shocking for anybody just watching the film, you know, uh, raw or whatever, just fresh, but coming off a racer head to then have the opening scene be a huge shot of a circus where there's, there's gotta be 50 extras all in costume and all doing their things in this massive circus uh, stage um, and you're panned into Anthony Hopkins and then panned out. It's just such a striking contrast in production value compared to Eraserhead that I was like, oh my God, David Lynch really got some toys to play with in this film. Um, so that was kind of just a shocking introduction. Um, so I'll kind of throw it at you to, to feedback on that or fill in. Yeah, a lot of this, a lot of that stuff at the very beginning was really Lynchian. Uh, it plus another kind of trippy scene that we see later on, where there's it's almost a dream. I guess it's a dream of uh, of of John's. He's laying in bed, and there's pipes and steam and hissing. Yes. Um, elephant sounds. Uh, industry has uh, visions of industry. There's guys doing a machine where they're pushing back and forth. Right. Right. They're all, they're all together. Their bodies are together, really close. It's really weird. Mm-hmm has a premonition of a later scene where he's being kicked. Interesting. Um, I didn't remember that part of the dream. I'll have to check that back out. Hmm. Um, but yeah. And then from what you said earlier, you know, the whole Paramount logo, the whole deal is that um, David was, he met this Stuart guy. I can't remember his last name, Stuart, but he, uh, he, he asked Stuart, he said, do you know of any scripts that I might be able to do other people's scripts? Cause I'm having trouble selling my own one now. Oh, it's been, it's been about three and a half years after Eraserhead and he's having trouble getting on into the next project. And do we know, do you, I'm sorry to cut you off. Do you know, what that script that he had in hand was about did that ever get made no it never got made it's called god it's called roddy rocket is what it was called i can't i don't i never heard the plot it's called roddy rocket yeah okay so anyway he was trying to stop roddy rocket and so the guy he was like yeah i've got the script and the producer that's on board for it, the executive producer is Mel Brooks. Wow. So Mel Brooks is the, if you don't, if you know him, the producers, um, Blazing Brooks, Saddles. Of course. It, it, don't put that on me, John. Of course I know Mel Brooks. 
<laughs> um, anyway, he was trying to branch out. He didn't want he didn't want to just be this guy who does uh, comedies, you know. That's awesome. Um, so here he is, and he wants to branch out, and he's got this script that he's shopping around, and he's he's found these two guys, and they wrote the script, and it's about. Well, you know what it's about, but uh, so that's how it happens. And so he goes to Mel Brooks and he said, hey, I've got this director, this young director that just had a cult film that was released. And I think he'd be good for this because he works in black and white. And Mel Brooks said, great, let's go watch his movie. So the both of them, Stuart and David and um i think i there was another person involved i think another producer that was friends with stewart um i i watched an interview where he was talking about um being in the theater with mel watching a razorhead and thinking that uh that it was going to be a totally different reaction um god i can't remember the guy's name but he's also an integral part of the film but yep so when he got out he he walked out into the parking lot and legend has it david was waiting anxiously and he was like you genius or something like that (laughs) oh my god and he was and he was hired on the spot, and then That's from that moment on, he was Mel Brooks' golden boy. He protected him from everything. He let wow. him have all his creative control all the way through. And wow! Yeah, that that fantastic. I'm so glad that Mel Brooks, um, you know, was able to take a chance. I. I am a little surprised because I was going to say that this film felt a bit like there were some directorial um, or artistic motives that may have been kind of blocked or forced away from David Lynch because I I don't know. I just, I felt like it was less, it was less crazy for, for a film that's focused on, you know, a very deformed man going through horrific psychological trauma and, and the accompanying characters going under similar psychological trauma. It just wasn't as weird, you know, as a racer head. And I, I felt like I kept telling myself like, man, I'm just picturing David Lynch, you know, submitting his version of the film and and the editors or whatever is being like, nah, this, you got to scrap this and that Paramount's not going to take that. Huh. So I'm a little surprised that he that he was able to own it. It felt a little bit conservative for what I would have expected. Right. Well, there's a lot of really weird Lynchian parts. Like one of my favorite ones is at the end when there's like some midgets and they're chilling next to this guy that is playing a, a made-up instrument. It's like a trumpet that's just very bulbous. It's right. like a giant 
bottom part. I think David, I heard some interview where David said that he made that thing. Wow. Okay. Not, not real. And um, the, the, they're putting a bunch of animals in, um, in a box, like toy animals, I guess. They said, look at all these beautiful animals. What a lot you have. <laughs> and it I just missed- seems like some. It seems yeah. like something weird that David might have said. Yeah, that is that is sweet. The the circus scenes he definitely owns, and and maybe that's the intent, right? Like the circus scenes where it's supposed to have that feel, just completely resonates that that absurdity and extremism. And then when you're in kind of the hospital or the high society or wherever it is, it's much more tame. And I guess he captures it, you know, in a very realistic way. Not, realistic but it it really gives you the the great sense of environment but i don't know i was just hoping for maybe i'm just fucked up and i was just hoping for more weird shit but but let's dive in a couple more points i appreciate you filling in on kind of how he he attained the the directorship that was awesome um i did think it was interesting how david when we when we begin to be introduced to the elephant man uh john merrick he he does not reveal his his first off he doesn't reveal anything right like anthony hopkins is going through the circus and he's just about to see it and the cops shut it down saying something like one of my favorite lines of the film the cop says something like freaks are perfectly okay freaks are perfectly okay but this is just way too much or something like that. He says it in a much more hilarious way to me. I was really laughing at the police just being like, freaks are one thing, but this guy, Jesus Christ, dude, you can't show this to people. And so he really builds up the, uh, I mean, it was like he was the circus um, hype man, you know, like he, he teases the elephant man so well that, that you, and then there's a couple more scenes that lead into it where we see maybe his arm and then we see his back and then we finally see his face after what feels like the whole film, but it's probably more like 30 to 35 minutes or whatever. But, um, but he puts the audience in the position of the circus goer, which, and you, you really feel like, all right, I, I kind of want to see it, like show it to me, which is just a fucked up feeling because you know, when Anthony Hopkins was walking through the circus, I was like, what the fuck are you doing here, man? Like, don't support this, this awfulness and this, um, what is it like profiteering off of these people, you know, it's sick. And then I found myself, you know, being like, God, I want to see it. I'm really interested in this, you know, did you kind of have a same feeling on that? Yeah. Um, I, I actually watched this one interview with John Hurt where he talks about how they wanted to reveal his face really early in the film, mm. like really, really early. And he said that he went to David and he was like, look, I don't think we should do this. Like I'm going through a lot of pain to, to put this makeup on. And I wanted to hit hard when you first see it. And I think it's mm. that scene when the, when the nurse, you're right. Sees it for the first time, mm-hmm. and that's a good one because it's very well lit. You can see his face really well. Yes. Um. And yeah, that makeup it takes. 
five to six hours to put on every time. So he has to show up at like 6 a.m. and then they start shooting at like noon-ish. And uh, by the way, they can't shoot two days in a row. He has to do every other day. Wow. Because it's epic. But he says that he said that he turned into that guy like mentally when he put oh, on shit. all that makeup. Um, John Hurt, he's a pretty good actor. He was in like Alien. Well, stuff. I was about to say, first off, um, I, I did just kind of do a quick little Google. I don't know why after the movie, I can't remember what I was looking up. Um, but yeah, to see John Hurt be that actor, I was like, oh my God. Like, it, it kind of struck me as a surprise, but he was a perfect choice. And I think, I think revealing his entirety early in the film would have been actually in a way, the ballsier thing to do because, because, you know, the whole kind of saving it and, and having that mystery for a little while, it was interesting to kind of put again, to put me in the circus goers view and almost kind of resent myself. But it's also a little bit cliche, I feel like. I think if they had showed him just strikingly early, it really would have been a harder task to to retain interest, I guess. And so I think it would have been interesting in that way. I mean, by the end of the film, which is only two hours long, but by the end of the film, I don't know about you, but but I basically had no shock or really even disgust of the elephant man at the end, you know, you, you've, I feel like I, I just got so accustomed to him that I was like, that's just a dude right there. Is that crazy? Or did yeah. you kind of feel same? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm with you there. I, I don't, I don't see how they could have done it with revealing him earlier because of how desensitized you get to him as much of a challenge as it may have been, it might've been an insurmountable challenge. And it may have been. It might've been, this might've been the only way to do it. And I, I mean, I enjoyed the way they did do it. I did enjoy it too. I, I think it just would have, they would have had to, I think, change the film. They would have had to add more elements or, or different elements, but, but regardless, it was, it was an interesting uh, introduction to, to John Merrick. And, I also think that, first off, I'm I'm a little surprised that he picked this script instead of writ, wrote it because the choice of having a main character with a very real life um, disfigurement, I mean, a, a historical disfigurement, I and mean, this is based on, on a real um, person, um, it just goes hand in hand with Eraserhead's depiction of disfigurement. I mean, that's totally different in the sense that it's like, post-nuclear, I guess, um, radiation is what I took it as. But still, just David Lynch has already kind of cemented himself into two movies that that really blur the line of human and, and not in some ways. So I thought that was actually fantastic for him to, to, to kind of keep the, I don't want to say theme, but the embodiment of disfigurement and, and move into this direction. I thought that was a great transition. Yeah. Um, I, I think that there, David said uh, that he, 
he was at a meeting with that Stewart guy about a new script and he said he had four scripts and the first one he said he said elephant man you know it's about the disfigured guy or whatever and he said you don't even have to tell me about the other scripts oh okay he he really does feel gravitated and i'm i'm thinking about maholland drive and the homeless person they're not really disfigured but they're just so so unhumanly you know dirtied up or whatever and so so far um three three out of three there is a human that is that is almost unhuman and so there's some sort of fascination you you said on our last podcast that david lynch shows a fascination with electricity and so far i see the fascination being um <laughs> how disfigured Smoke can we sting. Oh yeah. No, how disfigured can we make these people uh, and still have us uh, empathize with them? So I thought that was cool. Um, I think you know one of the main artistic points or things that we're supposed to kind of resolve in our own heads is when Dr. Treves, Anthony Hopkins, um, comes face to face with the reality that he is using John Merrick to to kind of grow in his own fame where he's showing him off to his fellow doctors and they're all amazed at the discovery. Um, and he doesn't even really cure him. You know, it, it's kind of a, from my point of view, I was like, why are all these people so in love with this surgeon? He hasn't done anything. He just found this guy and, and, you know, put him in the hospital and just feeds him. It's not any sort of medical breakthrough or whatever. He just found him. But still, they do. They revere him, and he's in, his name's in the newspaper all the time. And and I think it's the the kind of sick and twisted owner of of John Merrick, the circus owner, who says, like, you know, you just want the freak for yourself. And and at the time, he you know, he says like, fuck off or whatever. But then that night, he stays up all night thinking about that. And and I think we, I personally take a lot of heart to that just for my own life about the idea of, you know, is, is bonding with somebody else for your own good, really bonding with them, you know, or is it just this kind of brown nosing and, and riding on um, skirt tails and whatnot. So I, I took a lot of heart to that narrative. And even though it was kind of easy to, I guess, just pick up, I mean, it wasn't hidden at all. I, I thought that was a great um, narrative to drive forward. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think that uh, it was really hard for his character in that time in the movie, if you want to empathize with them, because that was the night that, uh, or not that night, the next day he would tell John that it was his apartment. Right. You know, and then that night would have been the last time he saw him for a while. That's a great and call. That probably that would have felt pretty bad. Um, yeah. And, uh, I mean, he really didn't do anything that bad as as far as like letting that one couple 
hang out with John that one day that they seemed like they just wanted to see him like as a spectacle. Mm-hmm. I feel like he really did give him a lot of dignity and Treves shouldn't have felt that bad. Um, there's an old man in the cast named Frederick Treves. Oh, what? And it's, the, and it's not Frederick Treves, the actual oh, doctor. That's so weird. It's just a dude, and his name is Frederick Treves, and he's he's been in other stuff. He's an actor. He's a theater actor. He's just like a stage uh, presence. Like he's just a a kind of um, like he, I don't know. He plays, a, he plays like an old man or something. Really? Wow, that is that is absurd, but awesome. Um, yeah, I agree with you that he really doesn't do anything too horrific. He just kind of, in some ways, uses this disfigured and in pain and in psychological terror person to to kind of better his own standing but but you're right i mean he doesn't subject um john merrick to really any sort of torture or whatnot so there there are worse things in life for sure but i i tried to look at my own life and, and not just current but past um experiences and be like you know were some of my relationships built on my maybe even subconscious desire to kind of better my own situation not it doesn't even have to be at the expense of the other person like i don't think that treves um betters his position at the expense of of john merrick in fact i mean he really makes john merrick a much more comfortable and happy person and shows him a lot of wonderment but it was it's interesting to look at that and i don't even know i mean is that even that i guess the question is is that even bad to if you're if you're also promoting the other one i mean it's almost like a symbiotic relationship it's kind of a sinister symbiosis i guess but anyways maybe that's enough rambling about that but i i still kind of turn that over in my head ever since watching the movie it's probably one of the things that has stuck with me the most but um i did want to bring up you mentioned the dream sequence where you see some industrial activity and and one of the most shot, not shocking, but striking images was of some chimneys that are just pumping out tons of smoke. And, and there are many scenes throughout the film. And, you know, this is what is this? I couldn't even place it. Is this like 1700s or so? It felt like about 1700s, maybe it's 1800s. Um, Say maybe eighteen hundred. Joseph, when was Joseph Merrick? Eighteen sixty-two. Okay, mid eighteen hundreds. So you know, smoke and steam; those are the power sources of of everything. But still, for David Lynch to show it so often, I mean, I think about the very beginning when the trampling scenes, you know, it vanishes in a puff of smoke, that dream sequence. And then of course, at the end, when you have that similar smoke, maybe I was reading a little too into it, but you know, this is a basically about circuses and smoke and then mirrors also play a huge part of the story where it's basically the, um darkness of the story you know showing john merrick his own disfigurement uh the 
the orderly or whatever you want to call that staff member shows him with his mirror a few times. And I just, I just liked how there was that kind of maybe tongue in cheek smoke and mirrors wordplay going on throughout the film. And I kept being like, is this guy, is is David Lynch really like throwing smoke and mirrors, like literally into his film? I don't know if that was, I don't know if that was on purpose, but I thought that that was very clever if it was, because I was like, that's just so cool to make a circus movie, you know, literally be about smoke and mirrors in not the way that you would think about smoke and mirrors. I mean, it's not to disguise or, um, you know, mirrors, I guess, would be to kind of enlarge it or whatever. So I thought that was awesome. <laughs> I don't know. Did you kind of pick up on on a similar vibe or any other kind of things that you thought were like, somewhat hidden in the film because i guess the film feels to me like a bit straightforward but but i bet if i watched it again there's there's these hidden things in it did, did you see anything or, or read anything historically about those well one historic thing i read about it was that i think what was said what was meant to have happened to his mom at the beginning was was that she was very scared by an elephant. Oh, I see. That was that was like above her. Mm. Not that she got trampled or anything like that. Which is I see. Which is something that was a story from um, Joseph Merrick's youth, something he would tell people about how he became that way. And I think that's why the name stuck. He went on to be a a performer like a circus performer type guy for a while i mean it's mostly it's mostly factual the movie is based mm. on um the journal of frederick treves and as far as what you were saying about the industrial stuff um you know um John is really mysterious to us. Um, and it makes us feel really detached from him when he's not speaking. And that was for a really long time in the film. I mean, you didn't even know if he had intelligence before he started saying right. the Bible verses or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, industry it makes you feel really detached and like alien, I guess, as, as, as man, as it is coming on, if you're not accustomed to industry, it's something that is kind of brutal. And it, it shows that in one of the scenes where, where the guy is just like all burn up and mangled and Treves is, is uh, operating on him. Right. And, Treves like angrily denounces industry and, and factory work or something like that. I can't remember what he says, but he's like, fuck this, basically. <laughs> and um, yeah, and I obviously I think David Lynch loves having this kind of motif, like the whole like it's the same kind of almost the same kind of backdrop as as a racer head almost by coincidence it's like he just lucked into that being able to do something like that again 
I think I think you bring up a lot of cool points uh, just to kind of just briefly talk about what you said about how we don't really know John Merrick. I it, now that you kind of say it, I mean, it, you're really looking at somebody who is almost has a mask on their face and on a costume on their body that that you just never see the person. You never see the human person underneath. And and he and poor John has has that never take that costume off. And so I love how you related that to industry, because industry is is very much a place where you can get lost very easily or or hide if you don't want to be found. You know, you can hide in these massive companies as a small employee and basically nobody will really ever know you. The person to the left and right might, you know, know your name and a little bit about you. But if you want to come in at 8 a.m. and leave at 5 p.m. and and nobody knows anything about you, you can absolutely do that and, and really hide. I know that's a little bit maybe more by choice for some people, although, you know, people do not people do not often choose to work uh, low wage industrial jobs, especially God, now that you now that you brought up that scene in the dream where those you know six or seven men are pumping some sort of industrial machine, I mean those people are hidden, right? Like we we don't humanize those people at all, really. They're just they're just bodies that are doing some sort of you know mechanical force. So I think that's an awesome um, relation that I I honestly had not really driven. I, I caught the industrial background and obviously John's. Um, costume you know and hiding behind that by force but i had not really related that so that's really cool um i do want to just kind of talk about my favorite scenes because i love doing that but i in my head i kind of want to talk about the end and the the suicide i what, what you assume he has to be everybody says he's dying and, and we've been told that he will die if he lays down and goes to sleep but so so that's what he at least he thinks it's suicide and I'm not exactly sure what there is to say, but it, it felt like a it felt like a solid ending. It felt a little bit like a kind of self-driven ending. Again, I don't really know what to say. I just feel like we should say something. You know, usually you should say something at the end of the film, but I don't know if it really tied any any sort of character arcs or whatever. Did you have any kind of comments that? that kind of drive that ending at all? Or is it, is it kind of as straightforward as I took it? <laughs> well, he, uh, he had under, he, he finally understood what kind of like what the nature of man was like at the end. He, uh, realized that, he had no worth before he proved his intelligence to these people. Um, he was an animal at that point um, before then. And once he realized that and through the special circumstances that trees put him in, um, he was able to meet that like theater star person and go to the theater and sit in the box and experience that and experience what it's like to be human 
but I think he was wise enough to know that his days were numbered and that it wasn't always going to be this happy. And that Do you mean biologically to- or socially and psychologically his days were numbered? Like somehow the hospital was going to kick him out or people were going to forget him or or do you just mean biologically, like he knew he was probably going to die from his illness? Uh, biologically, I think there's okay. there was gotcha. there was comment there were comments made right before they went to the theater about how um, he doesn't have much longer to live. Right. Okay, I wasn't sure if he had picked up on that, but that I think that paints a little bit of a happier picture, at least to me, that that he didn't. Because it felt weird, like, you know, to, to have attained that, the almost, I mean, uh, just a wonderful situation, you know, free living with your friends and having, being able to go out and society accept you for who you are. And, and, you know, if he didn't know that he was dying to have just given up on that, I guess, because he had achieved it, it, it felt very strange. But so I'm kind of hoping that he kind of knew and he wanted to go out on his own terms. And I can, I can absolutely appreciate that. I did, the more we're kind of talking about this ending, the more throughout the film that I realized that I was, I kept thinking about that flowers for Algernon novel. I don't know if you read that in like middle school or whatnot, but essentially the story is a, you know, a, a retarded man gets brain surgery that makes him a genius for a while, but it fades away. And it's kind of the same narrative of a person who lives in a, well, I guess in that story, when he's retarded, he, he thinks that he's incredibly happy, but it's, it's a somewhat dark um, life. And then he gets shown this different life um, that he really loves very much and, and owns. And, and then ultimately it's kind of taken away from him. So I kind of saw a lot of re- um, yeah references to that and similarities between the two, um, and I think it's a it's a striking story. Um, we all go through ups and downs, but to come from a situation for for so long of your you know childhood and up until you're 20 years old, and then to be gifted this new situation, it's a real test to to see if you can handle it with grace and, and maturity and use it for the good. And, and John absolutely does. You know, he, he's just a wonderful person to everybody and is just so kind and doesn't, doesn't have any sort of like retribution and wanting to eke it out back on humanity at all, even though he easily could, you know, with his um, newfound abilities, he could easily go and get some sort of weapon or use some sort of, I don't know, psychological warfare or whatever to ruin some people. And he doesn't, he just is this wonderful person. And I think it's just awesome that he, he can own his new situation like that. Um, all right. Well, I do want to talk just some favorite scenes before we, before we close out. And um, two of them were really towards the end of the film when he is captured by that circus owner and taken wherever the hell abroad to some sort of circus. And, and the owner's drunk and pissed and he throws John in a cage uh, with monkeys, um, you know, with just a small little grate protecting him from these monkeys. And good God, the monkeys just look so <laughs> fucking vicious and horrible. And, and David Lynch frames it in such a wonderful, awful way 
where you, I mean, if he had kind of shot that back, you know, and seen the man put into the film, I'm not into the film, into the cages and the monkeys are harassing him. It's one thing, but the way he basically shoved the camera up into the cage and had these monkeys baring their teeth at your face. I was just so frightened and scared. And to think to have to spend a night like that out and out in the elements, it was so brutal and strikingly different than the entire previous film, you know, where it's, it's been pretty gentle the way he's been treated. I just loved it. It was so real and wonderful. um, And it scared the shit out of me. And then, and then when he, uh, when he escapes, when his fellow circus um, freaks uh, uh, pop the lock and free him. And then they're just kind of walking in the woods like this, I don't know, like this merry band of, I mean, they're not merry because they're scared and they're sneaking him out, but it's just such a wonderful um, collection of people that are saving him. And they're literally walking through the mud in the woods. It's something like you'd see out of some sort of medieval, like fantasy kind of thing. And it just, it was just so, again, I can't just say wonderful enough, but I, I just loved how cool it was. I really dug that scene. And then um, I think the final shots that I really enjoyed the the cinematography of were the shots where you get these zoomed in versions of John's cathedral that he's model that he's been making because, you know, you, you see him building it throughout the film and it's kind of nice. It's like, okay, he has a way to spend his time and maybe there's even a Christian um, reverence towards it. And he's showing this kind of light, side of him and our artistic side but then when you zoom in when they zoom in on the final product it is so absurdly meticulous and great that it's like it just it just wowed me like holy shit this guy didn't just make some artwork where it's like you know it's good and it's it comes from somebody who is disfigured and so you kind of promote it more because it's like he had to go through so much to make this that, you know, okay, it's not a masterpiece, but it's just awesome. No, this thing was incredible. And you don't get that until that just uh, micro shot that's zoomed in showing all of the arches and detail that he put into it. And then to see it, I think it's, I think it's, isn't it broken by the intruders? I want to say it was broken by. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And so that just, that just layers on the horror um, and just a, just a stroke of genius to do that. I absolutely loved all of those scenes. Um, any, any final, uh, that's not final. Cause I think, I think you wanted to save some stuff, but I turn it over to you to share whatever you'd like. Cause I just rambled for a long time. You're good. Um, <laughs> I think you were, you were talking about, uh, how it was like, uh, flowers for Algernon. Hmm. Um, I've heard multiple people compare this one to um, The Metamorphosis by Kafka. Hmm. It's a little short story about a guy who wakes up as like a nasty insect hybrid being. And um, he becomes a burden upon his family. And eventually decides to stop eating and die of hunger. 
Oh, wow. I have not read that or seen any reproductions of that. That's, that's I've a never, very interesting story. I've never read it. I'm not going to front, but uh, I've heard a bunch of people compare this movie to that. And oh. it makes a little bit of sense. Except to you, was always the the monster instead of just turning into it. Yeah, it feels a little bit reversed to me, right? Like he feels like the horrific monster to start, and then he's, you know, he realizes society accepts him for what he is instead of instead of in in the metamorphosis swapping the role. So it seems a little bit like antonyms there, but but maybe if I read the story, I would pick up a little bit more on synonyms. But that's a great, uh, yeah. great reach there. And I think it'd be cool moving forward. You know, we don't have to force the issue or anything, but if there are um, obvious or semi-obvious connective pieces of media, whether it's short stories or poems or whatever, or other, other films or whatever, I would not mind um, watching or reading during the week to talk similarities because you know, one week to watch one film, there's, there's still some, some good time to join things. So it, I think it'd be cool to have a companion piece or even later on, you know, like, like if you bring these things up or I bring something up, we could watch them at a later date and kind of do some, some of our own comparisons. I think that might be a, a fun thing for future. Uh, yeah, I agree. Well, uh, fun facts. Uh, this movie was nominated for eight Oscars. Oh my God. It, what? Okay. It didn't win a single one, but it was only because it came out the same year as Raging Bull. Oh, shit. I was thinking maybe maybe you could get away with costume and effects or something like that, but good God, Raging Bull is, is the superior film, I have to say, but that's yeah. cool that it got such a recognition. That would have just absolutely put David Lynch's name on the map there. Holy shit. Yeah. So whenever the, they were making the, the makeup for this film, they were able to go to this um, museum in London and get this cast of Joseph Merrick's body. Really? And head. So in the cast that they were able to borrow, it actually had his physical hairs and whiskers and stuff from, from his corpse. Oh, I don't that know about that. Yeah. So oh. they, were in, they were in the possession of some nasty, nasty. And they, and they made their shit out of that or they just kind of used it for reference, I hope. They used it for reference. Oh, okay. But still, wow. That's, I think that's awesome to use, you know, to go that deep and to do your homework to get it right. I love whenever they do things like that. So hats off to them. That's badass. And then Mel Brooks, the next time he did something that wasn't a comedy was not as good as this. It was David Cronenberg's The Fly. Oh, he went from this to The Fly. I did not realize that was, that was a West Brooks... Um, Production. I've never actually seen The Fly, but I've heard good things. You think this is? It, it's it's okay. I mm. mean, it's this was this was um, very good for what it was. It was able to reach a wider audience than um, his previous film, 
probably more than the fly could reach because a lot of people would be really turned off by the, the idea of yeah. we'll just watch a trailer for the fly you'll see well I, I mean i've seen enough to know exactly what it is and that would be that would be a low um you know not a blockbuster i wouldn't think so that makes sense um cool any uh any final closings on the elephant man David loves smoke. <laughs> he had that little poof, poof of smoke when the elf man was born in the beginning. Right. Um, he likes uh, curtains, performances. Mm-hmm. We had a little performance in this one, didn't we? The circus, the and then the the, uh, the, yeah, the play, the play. The play he does like to have he does like to have kind of media within media. He likes to show art within his art, which is very cool. Yeah, that's about it. Oh, Got all my I dig it, out. man. That was as I kind of have said too many times. It, it did feel a little bit more straightforward, but it was highly enjoyable, and I love that it threw David Lynch kind of into the mainstream because we need more um, wild people in the mainstream. And I'm super excited. Um, He had, so he's coming off of eight Oscar nods at that point. You probably can do what you want. And he, he takes four years to pump out Dune, which I know incredibly little about the Dune um you know environment or following or story at all i know some big fans of the books and some of the productions but i i am going into this very blind and i'm very excited to see uh to see his spin on sci-fi i guess i i think i know that it's sci-fi if anything but uh don't spoil anything for me or the listeners and hopefully some of y'all you know will be able to watch dune and tune into us uh next Tuesday is when this comes out to, to talk about it. And we'll have a Super Bowl follow-up as well. Yep. It's a, you know, it was a popular sci-fi series at the time. And it was, they were looking for the perfect person to do the adaptation of it because they were happy with how Elephant Man turned out and they were hopeful. All right. I look forward to it. And we will talk to you next week. See you next week. Yeah.